This is Words Matter. Welcome to Words Matter. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. We are joined today by one of the truly great journalists and writers working today, best-selling, award-winning author, and Vanity Fair special correspondent, among other titles, William D. Cohen. Welcome to Words Matter. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. But first, an introduction is in order. Several times an episode, I will say we when talking about Words Matter. There are 15 people who spend all or significant part of their time working on this project, or plan to. Katie Barlow is one of those people. Katie has been working with us since launch. She's taken the lead in developing new podcasts, and we have two DC-based projects in pre-production at the moment. By way of background, Katie's a lawyer and the founder and editor of DC Circuit Breaker, which provides news and analysis on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, something that's going to become even more important over the next few weeks, months, and even years. As a journalist, Katie has covered Capitol Hill with WTOP, including Justice Kagan's confirmation hearing, as well as the Supreme Court with NPR's Nina Totenberg. It was always in the plan that as we grew, Katie would be a sometime host and co-host of this podcast. So we're moving that up. Katie, welcome to Words Matter. Hello. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It is great to have you. And with that, our host will introduce today's guest. Katie? Thank you. And thanks, Bill, for being here. We're excited to have you. Bill Cohen is a former senior Wall Street M&A investment banker for 17 years and a New York Times bestselling author of three nonfiction narratives about Wall Street. Bill is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair. He also writes for The Financial Times, The New York Times, Bloomberg Businessweek, The Atlantic, The Nation, Fortune, and Politico. Thanks again for being here, Bill. It's great to be here. We didn't miss anything, did we? I don't think so, no. So before we dive into your area of expertise, which we want to get to, I just want to get your reaction and talk a little bit about the president's treatment of the media. He once again recently tweeted, quote, the rigged and corrupt media is the enemy of the people. And at Words Matter, we obviously believe his language is important. All language is important. And so just wanted to get your reaction of how that feels as a journalist out there right now for you and for your colleagues. I guess I feel that there's a certain irony in those kind of comments that he's been making for uh, well over two years of his presidency. But even if you go back as a real estate developer and as a candidate, uh, Donald Trump would always be hypercritical of the media. But the the irony is, of course, that he wouldn't be where he is now without the benef- benefit of having been the focus of much media attention for his whole career. I mean, he's the master manipulator of the media. He loves the media attention. Uh, he loves uh, having his name uh, in the paper and being, you know, uh, when he is you know, the whole front page of the New York Times is dedicated to him. He loves nothing better. When Rachel Maddow spends a whole hour talking about him, he loves it. So the irony of him criticizing the media and calling them the enemy of the people, which are such loaded words that it's a little frightening, I can't quite get over that. You know, I have interviewed him a few times for articles I've written, uh, one in The Atlantic and one uh, in Vanity Fair before he became a presidential candidate. Uh, and he was, you know, highly critical of me for writing uh, those articles. Uh, really? He, yes. I mean, he, he was critical of the content uh, of it was it was actually fascinating because I wrote uh, an article in the Atlantic about why people on Wall Street don't do business with Donald Trump. This was in you know Aprilish of two thousand 
2014 or thereabouts kind of thing, or uh, January 2014. And it was, you know, very critical of him. It said that uh, the only uh, bank that would do business with him was uh, with him was Deutsche Bank, uh, which is, of course, uh, something that we're all learning a lot about uh, more and more all the time, that the rest of Wall Street it was so fed up with him that he was on the do not do business with list. Uh, they were tired of him uh, reneging on their loans, uh, suing them, uh, you know, being a terrible creditor. Uh, and so uh, I wrote that. I also wrote about how he cheated at golf, all of these things. <laughs> and uh, uh, I then appeared on Bloomberg TV where I was then a regular contributing editor and um, uh, I called him up uh, a, l- a little while after to begin writing a piece uh, for Vanity Fair about Trump University. And uh, when no one was focused on uh, Trump University, that was one of the brilliance of uh, of Graydon Carter is he was sort of ahead a of the curve on so many of these things. But uh, Donald told me that he – the reason he would agree to talk to me the second time uh, after what I wrote in the first time is because when I went on Bloomberg TV, he was watching me when I was on TV and the anchors were trying to get – me to say something bad about him as a businessman. And I actually was saying things like, well, actually, I think he's become a better businessman because he doesn't invest any of his own money anymore. He's just learned to put his name on buildings and get paid fees for that. And actually, he's he's de-risked the Trump organization to some degree. And they kept trying to get me to say that he was a lousy businessman. And I kept saying, well, he's not as bad as he used to be. And then Donald appreciated that so much, he agreed to talk to me for the Vanity Fair piece, which he also, of course, didn't like and told me so. And then when I wanted to write about him for Vanity Fair when he was a candidate, uh, you know, I was one of the few people at Vanity Fair who could actually get access to him. Hope Hicks said to me, oh, you know, I think we're going to do this. I think Donald's going to let you go with him on the plane and fly out to wherever, Iowa, and then come back uh, at night. And and then a few days later, I got a call from Hope saying, no, uh, no, uh, Bill, he's not going to do that. And he wanted me to ask you personally this question, Bill, what happened to you? <laughs> what ha- Bill, what, what did what, happen? What happened to you? <laughs> why, why did you become, you know, anti-Donald Trump? Mm. And I think that's a good way to segue into our topic today. He could have been saying, Bill, what happened to you? You had a nice career as a Wall Street banker. Right, why did I go into journalism? Why did you, why did you take that detour? And – I think one of the reasons I love talking to you, love reading you, is you cover that intersection between politics and finance and Wall Street and you understand it in a way that people in both of those um, sectors, uh, you understand it better than they do. And you are able to explain the tensions there and also get to what people are really thinking past the cliches, past the rhetoric. And one of the things we wanted to start off with today is – you know, we have the recent Bernie Sanders announcement that he is officially running. We have Elizabeth Warren and her tax plans and, and others. And is that intersection, that place you cover, is that going to be one of the battles for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party in 2020 in the nominating process between fought at the corner there at Wall Street? Yeah, I mean, I, to, to the extent that money is the mother's milk of politics uh, and you are not independently wealthy, if you are not a real billionaire, let's just stipulate to say Mike Bloomberg and Howard Schultz are probably real billionaires. Donald Trump is plenty wealthy, but maybe not really a billionaire. Uh, uh, you know, if, if you don't uh, need money to run your campaign, then Wall Street will have no influence. But to the extent that you do need money to run your campaign and to get it off the ground, then uh, it's amazing, uh, uh, even though there are people out there who are running for president 
who uh, would fashion themselves to be populists slash progressives and and proposing things that m- a lot of people on Wall Street might not like, a lot of people with a m- lot of money might not like, they inevitably have to come through Wall Street, at the be- especially at this stage, uh, when they're trying to figure out whether there's any viability to their campaigns or their candidacy. They have to come through Wall Street. Will, will these Wall Street money guys, these Democratic money guys who are, you know, kind of well known at this point, uh, uh, will they be supportive of their effort to run for president, or will they take it seriously? They may not necessarily commit to them right now. They might not necessarily give them more than you know the minimum amount of money that they can give. Uh, but they uh, they need to have that sense that the money people on Wall Street, the serious Democratic money guys on Wall Street, are going to take them seriously and not rule them out. And that's what's happening right now. So that actually brings up a question for me. When we talk about money and needing money from Wall Street for the campaign, we're talking in large part about needing that money for speech, needing that money to advertise. And I wanted to ask you, when the founders enshrined the idea of free speech into our Constitution— First Amendment. The First Amendment. Thank goodness. The idea of free speech was standing on the street corner or— being in the town square with leaflets. Our idea of speaking loudly has a much different tone now. And the idea back then and and still today is if there's bad speech or offensive speech, the answer to that is not to curtail that speech. Um, As the famous Justice Brandeis said at one point, the remedy for bad speech is more speech. But after the Citizens United decision in 2010, that changed the game a little bit. Corporations could speak freely and kind of drown out the town square, drown out the marketplace, speak with a megaphone. Do you think it's time we start talking about the different town square that we're in now, that we're in a different landscape? Money as speech means something different um, and and money in politics means something different than it did back then and even 20 years ago. Well, obviously, I'm not a big fan of the Citizens United court uh, decision. Uh, I think, you know, there's already there was already enough big money in politics. There's already enough corporate interests uh, dominating Washington and also, of course, Wall Street. Uh, and the, the idea that we you know, can allow corporations to you know, give as much money as they have and want and rich people to give as much money as they possibly can uh, to get their word out of their candidate, uh, obviously, I think, warps politics in, in, a, in a negative way. But you know, on the other hand, there are uh, people who succeed in politics without having the benefit of having that kind of support. In fact, sometimes that support doesn't help you. So I guess I'm, I don't like the Citizens United decision. Uh, I wish it had been decided differently. I wish it could be repealed because I don't think it's healthy. Frankly, I, I've been an advocate my entire life of publicly financing campaigns. So everybody gets you know, depending on where you are, you know, whatever the money, minimum money is, 100000 to run for Congress in upstate New York or whatever it is. So everybody has the same amount. So everybody has the same opportunity to get access to media and, and you can't bring more money to it. OK, now now that's probably, you know, anti-competitive. That's not the American way. But I think it would take a lot of and I remember when I was 17, actually, writing a letter to Ted Kennedy, who was my senator at the time in Massachusetts where I was growing up, and, and about this very topic and got a letter. I thought it was handwritten or hand-typed letter. Uh, it's, it had a, had a real felt pen tip. Uh, I got the uh, same. I got the same got letter. The same, when I was like ten. Right, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking, oh my gosh, Ted Kennedy is actually responding to me. But uh, 
I've felt uh, passionately about that, but nobody's really talking about you know publicly financing elections anymore. Somehow limiting the amount of money that can get into politics, which I think is extremely corrupting. But I think you know politics has always been very contentious. Uh, we think it's especially contentious now. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think you know even in the old days, uh, you know it was. Uh, could be quite violent, uh, could be quite nasty. And so I think this is, you know, the nature of our politics, unfortunately. You know, uh, we think we live in a very, very difficult and contentious time. A hundred, you know, in 1860s, we had a civil war in this country. Uh, You know, that was extremely violent and deadly. And obviously people felt quite passionately about the reasons for having that. I don't think we're headed towards a civil war, but, you know, we haven't had one in you know, 150 years. So maybe we're through that phase of our uh, thinking. Uh, but, uh, you know, we live in dangerous times and have been for a long time. I, I mean, I'm personally, as a, a journalist, I'm uh, I'm appreciative of the First Amendment every single day. I don't particularly like uh, when Trump uses that kind of ridiculous rhetoric. I find it silly and beneath the office of the President of the United States. But I'm also glad that I'm not, you know, a reporter working in Russia or uh, where, you know, the people, the reporters get gunned down on the street. And, of course, I, you know, I'm not naive either. I worry that that could happen here. Right. Maybe even has. Somebody that you wrote about recently is bringing up perhaps a counter argument or a course correct in this idea of speaking with a megaphone through through corporate funds, uh, and that's Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. Say what you will about her politics, whether you agree with them or not, but she and other millennials who are, are, are rising to um, office and rising to power are harnessing social media in a way that uh, doesn't rely on these corporate funds and really just uses the town square of Twitter or Instagram to speak with an equally sizable megaphone, I think. What what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, Donald Trump does that too. Uh, right. Know, uh, uh, I've often found it fascinating. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Justin Bieber has like 100 million Twitter followers. What, mu- what must it be like to have 100 million? I mean, if you would just say, oh, that Bill Cohen's book – you know about Goldman Sachs was great. I really right. recommend it. Right. You know one one percent of that. One percent of that. I'd yeah. be, I'd be a, a done. I mean the ability to command uh, that big an audience. You know at any moment of any day, without having to pay for it, is kind of extraordinary. I mean that is quite unique at this moment in history, uh, and it's amazing that people like you know Justin Bieber are not more political. Obviously, uh, other people with a lot of followers like Obama and Trump, uh, you know, are uh, political. AOC has uh, a lot of followers. The most interesting thing I thought when I was sort of writing, what's Wall Street's reaction to AOC? Uh, they, uh, you know, again, the big deal Dems on Wall Street, the money guys on Wall Street, they are actually uh, surprisingly supportive of her and open-minded about her. I don't think they agree with everything she's saying policy-wise or think that she knows everything that she's talking about policy-wise. But, I mean, I think a general reaction on Wall Street to say, Taxing people who make more than ten million dollars a year at seventy percent is hey. If I can make more than ten million dollars a year, I'm happy to pay the marginal amount above that at seventy percent rate. But I think they think it's really great that she's you know in the Democratic Party, attracting more people to the Democratic Party, opening up the debate, able to get uh, to have this big microphone that she has, and able to counter Trump in clever ways and and that whole push. I mean, I worry as a journalist, you know, I think the media likes to build people up and then they like to tear them down. I think we may be in the building up phase of AOC. 
and we may be unfortunately having to face a tearing down phase uh, coming, and I've seen that over and over and over again. Uh, but maybe she will defy that. Maybe she's something different. It, it Obviously, she is, what, 29 years old? She grew right. up with social media. She grew up. She's good at Twitter. She's, you know, supposedly really good at Twitter, whatever that she means. Yeah. She's good at getting. <laughs> she uh, and Chrissy Teigen. Yes. She's good at getting uh, attention from uh, the media. But, you know, so is Trump. Right. Trump is, too. They they both are. Do you think that that will impact or affect the role that Wall Street plays or even that money and corporate funds play in elections going forward now that there are these alternative routes to attention, to support? Oh, I think it, I think it absolutely will. I mean, between Citizens United and you know, having your own YouTube channel, having your own Twitter uh, account, your Facebook, all of that is what I, you know, sort of the democratization of democracy. Uh, it used to have to be able to go through, you know, if you couldn't get Walter Cronkite to mention something about you, you know, I grew up in an age where there were three television networks and there were three channels basically, and, and that was it. And along came cable and along came UHF, and, you know, and it's just exploded from there. So on the one hand, it's already changed uh, politics, and I think probably in a good way, although we all know how nasty Twitter can be uh, and how unpleasant it can be. But, you know, even despite that, despite that, every one of these Democratic candidates who wants to be taken seriously has reached out to these big money guys on Wall Street and saying, you know, what do you think? Do I have a chance? Will you support me? Can you support me? Can you say a good thing about me? Can you introduce me to X, Y, and Z people? So if, if it were just Twitter that could get the job done or just Facebook or just YouTube or, or just social media, then the, then the big money Wall Street guys wouldn't be consulted. But they are being consulted. They are being courted. They are players still. And, and they are an important uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, getting into the Hall of Fame when you're a, a baseball player or something. It's not just a public popularity contest. There are actually people with knowledge about your career who have to vote on whether you should be in. I think it, it, it's sort of like a seal of approval uh, if you can get uh, these money guys to think that you're legit because, you know, the axis between Wall Street and Washington is still incredibly powerful and, and it's a juggernaut and it's cartel and it's really not going away. One of the things that I found interesting about that piece that you wrote about, and I, we refer to her around here as Congresswoman um, Ocasio-Cortez, just simply to remind those people that she's an elected member of the United States Congress. She might be 29 years old. She might be a millennial, but she's actually as former boss of mine would say, a duly elected member of the United States Congress. And, and defeated a very powerful congressman to do it. Absolutely. And one of the things that I found interesting about that piece you wrote was the difference between the reaction on Wall Street and, and Wall Street Democrats, and those people still do exist. A lot of them on Wall Street are Democrats, believe it or not. What I found interesting in that piece was that the reaction to Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's uh, proposals and those by a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are treated somewhat differently. And I just wanted you to talk for a minute before we uh, moved on about why you think that is the difference. Is it the substance or is it her style or is it that they they, they fear this new thing? I think it's a, it's a little bit of all the three of those things. I mean, you know, they don't like uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren because uh, they victimize Wall Street. Uh, in other words, they use Wall Street to uh, increase their own popularity, to, to be viewed as more progressive, more liberal, more populist. And, and there's no easier target to do that with than Wall Street. And so, I mean, Elizabeth Warren's been using Wall Street as a punching bag, uh, you know, you know, even before uh, the financial crisis, right? Uh, she owes 
her whole uh, political career to bashing Wall Street uh, and to some extent, but to a lesser extent, uh, Bernie Sanders does too. And so uh, I think they just dismiss those two candidates uh, as sort of the wacky left. They don't dismiss how popular they are or, or how effective they might be or how electable they might be. But AOC, as I call her, uh, Congresswoman AOC, uh, hasn't, uh, as far as I can tell, been uh, yet uh, been bashing Wall Street and going for the cheap shot of bashing uh, Wall Street. Uh, she has been more nuanced. She's obviously uh, gone after uh, and so, talked about taxing wealthy people. But I think even some wealthy people believe that, uh, especially on the margins, uh, you know, again, if you're making more than $10 million a year, and, you know, between 10 and $15 million or whatever, and you, you, the next $5 million after 10 is taxed at 70%, I think, you know, you can manage to get your mind around that uh, if that's the way it all, goes. All 3,755 people, according to the government, who do make over $10 million a year. Exactly. Correct. So we've talked about uh, Senator Warren. We've talked about uh, Bernie Sanders. Let's talk about a third person. Uh, You mentioned the axis between Wall Street and Washington, and somebody that sits squarely in the center of that is Mike Bloomberg. And he has taken the time and effort to put feelers out. He might be running. I vividly remember a minute-long commercial in the middle of what I believe was the Comey interview on 60 Minutes, uh, where Mike Bloomberg shows up, talks straight to the camera in a purple tie, trying to show unity. He's clearly sending a message. What do you think about his candidacy? Well, I mean, I, I uh, some disclosure. I mean, I uh, was a on-air person for Bloomberg TV for ten years. I've written for Bloomberg Business Week, and you know, occasionally continue to do that. I used to be a, one of the original columnists at Bloomberg View, but so at the moment, I don't have any uh, ties to the company. Uh, but I've been a big fan of Mike Bloomberg's. I, I liked uh, what he did when he was, by and large, not completely, when he was. Uh, uh, mayor of New York. Uh, he's obviously an incredibly successful uh, entrepreneur, uh, a real American success story. Anybody who can get fired from Wall Street uh, and then turn around and become a uh, you know the fifth wealthiest man in the country uh, or something like that, uh, obviously is quite accomplished and has accomplished a lot. And then to turn that into a a 12-year run uh, that was by and large viewed fairly positively uh, uh, in New York City, not that, you know, he didn't make some, uh, do some things that really irritated people like stop and frisk and telling people, uh, even though I don't, you know, believe in smoking, but, you know, uh, preventing people from smoking in restaurants and buildings. I mean, uh, you know, we can talk about those things and we can talk about how maybe he shouldn't have gotten a third term uh, and the way he went about getting the third term. But I think by and large, the guy has accomplished an incredible amount. I think there are a lot of people who wish that he had run uh, in 2016, pulled the trigger, uh, no pun intended, and actually run. Uh, but he uh, got skittish. He got too concerned. He got too care, care, care too much about what the outcome might be. I mean, whether you hate Donald Trump or love Donald Trump, at least the guy said, "What the hell? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for it." And if Mike Bloomberg had done that, he might be president today. Uh, again, once once again, I think he's starting to think about it too much. He's trying to think about whether or not 
uh, you know, he he can possibly win uh, given his age, given his ethnicity, given his marital status, whatever it is, given his wealth. You know, this is not an, a, a time when people are looking to billionaires to solve problems. The, the you know, <laughs> billionaires are are not. Um, uh, as uh, as highly regarded at the moment as me, perhaps they've uh, been been at the pa- been in the past. So uh, my gut, uh, even though lots of people tell me he is going to run, people thought he was going to announce in February. It's now getting towards the end of February as a mini announcement. Then I've heard the theory that the four Bs don't have to uh, make their uh, announcements because they're so well known. Uh, you know, Bernie, Biden, Beto, and Bloomberg. Four Bs. The I four haven't B's. heard that. The killer Bs. The four killer Bs don't <laughs> have to. All uh, bros. <laughs> all, all, our four bros uh, don't have to make their announcements uh, anytime soon because they're either uh, having a lot of money or are well-known. But I have a fear. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's good or bad at this point. I mean, there are a lot of people who I know who w- would vote for Mike Bloomberg in a nanosecond, but they happen to be you know, by and large, New Yorkers. Uh, and, you know, what we learned, if anything, you know, what New Yorkers think, unfortunately, about electoral politics is pretty meaningless at this point, because if you'd asked any New Yorker in, in November of 2016, they would have said there's no way Donald Trump, who we know well, unfortunately, is going to win. And, of course, he won. So I think that, you know, Mike uh, probably will decide not to run. And I think, uh, you know, that's probably best for him. I don't think that's because I think somebody like him would be refreshing a change and kind of in many ways what we need uh, at the moment is the antidote to Trump. But given Trump's background, what Trump stands for, his quote unquote billionaire status, his New Yorker status, I think people are probably sick and tired of people who seem to be billionaires uh, or really are billionaires and come from New York. Well, I think that's a a great point, Bill, in terms of the way Mike Bloomberg is looking at it, and I've also been fortunate. I never served in his employee, but one of his top strategists, a man named Kevin Sheiky, is somebody who I've known my entire political life. Um, is a good friend, is a smart guy, and the fact that uh, he's lasted with Michael Bloomberg for twenty years now either says something about Sheiky's greatness or the, the the holes in Mr. Bloomberg's judgment. And I say that kiddingly and lovingly. But one of the questions I had is particularly after reading your "I'd vote for Mike Bloomberg in a heartbeat" Wall Street's case for President Bloomberg back in November was that – and I share your view. I actually would think that a guy from Massachusetts would say that he was the greatest mayor in the city of the history of New York because he was the only one who was born in, in Massachusetts. In <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I would figure that would be the first time we ever had a mayor with a Boston accent. And I go further. I actually take the smoking thing as, as, as a kid growing up here and a young person growing up going out. I now get to go to a bar and not smell like smoke. And even though it was a great offense against civil liberty, it was a huge victory for quality of life. That being said – one of the things I got from reading your piece, and maybe this will get into why you think he won't run, is Mike at this point just, and I mean this lovingly, just too old. And I don't mean age-wise. I mean just in terms of you know, some of the things he said on the campaign trail, some of his reading of the room in 2020 as opposed to – or 2019 as opposed to, again, like you said, three times. And people forget he was he was term limited and he was able to get – he worked, he worked the system. He worked the system. To get that third term. To get that um, third term. Look, I mean, um, you know, I, I'm on the verge of, um, you know, my 59th birthday. <laughs> you know, I have two kids in their 20s. So, I mean, and I don't really I, – I, I can't claim to anymore understand what uh, the next generation is interested in or wants. Uh, but, I mean, in terms of uh, his health, 
It's excellent. He's vigorous. Uh, he, uh, he's intellectually engaged. He connects, I think, very well with people on a retail politic. You know what people used to say about Hillary, right? And, I, you know, I never saw because I never met Hillary. But people would say about Hillary, oh, if you just got to meet her, you know, you would think that she's the greatest. Uh, I did meet Obama, and I thought Obama was fabulous and, and really connected well. And I think Mike does, too. But, uh, again, you know, uh, no offense. I mean, he's uh, a, a Jewish single billionaire from New York City uh, who's in his 70s. His mother lived to be 102, I guess. So that does not sound like, uh, you know, AOC. That does not yep. sound like Kamala Harris. That does not sound uh, uh, like Beto O'Rourke. I'm, I'm not sure where the party is going to go. I mean, I, 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 uh, Brett Stevens and I had this debate uh, on, on MSNBC the other morning. And, and my view was she, he was saying that he thinks Amy Klobuchar is the best Democrat uh, suited to beat uh, President uh, Trump. And, and, I say, and I said, well, I respectfully disagree. I think whoever gets the Democratic nomination is going to be in a very <laughs> yep. strong position to win. And I don't know who that's going to be, but I'm very convinced at this point. Now, maybe I'm going to be wrong and everybody will look back at this and say how wrong I was, but that's okay. I think that uh, uh, Trump is going to go down to a resounding defeat in 2020, and I think whoever is the Democratic nominee is obviously going to win. One of the things, again, that I wanted to talk about with you, we want to talk about with your uh, political reporting is you you have this way of introducing us to characters that we already know and some of them that we don't and giving us a slightly different view of them. And I'm just going to pick a few from, from your writing. I'm going to start with Preet, the former U.S. attorney in the Southern District. Uh, he's been a guest on this show. But I – when I read your piece back in July, I tended to agree with you. And I wanted to prove – and the, obviously I'll let you state what your premise was. But I wanted to probe a little bit about why you decided to take on that topic and ask some of those questions about is, is the legend a little bit overstated? Well, I mean, I think what you're referring to is I, I, you know, question sort of the, uh, the myth of Preet Bharara. Um, and again, you know, I've interviewed Preet several occasions uh, when he was U.S. attorney, and, and I find, by the way, I, I find him incredibly engaging personally. I have nothing against him personally. I find him witty and charming and funny, great sense of humor. Big Bruce Springsteen fan, which I like. I've seen him speak over and over and again. He, he's just a uh, uh, sense of humor, charming, self-deprecating, all of those things. But, capital B, but, uh, his job, uh, and, and this is, you know, and, and Jesse Eisinger at ProBublica and I have talked about this and agree about this. You know, his job when he was U.S. attorney in the Southern District was to uh, investigate uh, and potentially prosecute the wrongdoing on Wall Street that led to the financial crisis in 2008. And, and in my mind, he completely abdicated that responsibility. And I still don't know why. Jesse doesn't know why. And he wrote a whole book about it. Uh, we don't know why he did this. He's never explained it. When I've asked him about this, he says, well, Bill, you haven't seen the evidence that we've seen. And I said, well, Preet, that's great. Cause you're what the all US, prosecutors say when they choose right, that. <laughs> right. You're the U.S. attorney. You have subpoena power. I don't. Why don't you do everyone a favor and let's see some of the evidence that you've gathered? Okay, so that we can judge and we can see whether we agree with you or not. Because I know from my own reporting about why uh, Bear Stearns failed, uh, a, a book called House of Cards, that there was plenty of evidence that could have been used to prosecute the two Bear Stearns hedge fund managers. And when they were prosecuted in the Eastern District of New York, not the Southern District of New York, and by the way, I still don't understand why that prosecution happened in the Eastern District and not the Southern District. And I still don't understand why they didn't use the information that I had in my book that was public by then, by the time of their trial, 
that that I know that they read in the Eastern District of New York. They didn't use the information that uh, was quite damning, and the two Bear Stearns hedge fund managers uh, were acquitted. So, and then that was it. And then Preet did not try one more. He went after the low hanging fruit of insider trading and developed this eighty two and O record, which put him on the cover of Time magazine, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and made him like the sheriff of Wall Street. But he forgot his main job was to ferret out and the wrongdoing that occurred. Uh, in the years leading up to the financial crisis, and he didn't do it. What about Raj Rajarantham and the the founder Ins- of Galleon? And insider the- trading, low-hanging fruit. Okay, great. You, you had to prosecute it. Thank you, Preet. You did it. You did a great job. I mean, he, he went table. after hedge fund managers. He went after heads. Why is that not that, that, equate that, that, to at because, least? Because, because that, there's a big difference between going after insider trading and talking to hedge fund managers and 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 using tapes and and uh, wires and people on wires and all that that's fine and I don't begrudge him doing that and that was low hanging fruit and good for him he was eighty two and zero until you know he started uh, uh, stretching uh, his prosecutions and a bunch of them got overturned but he completely neglected what what happened on Wall Street in the years leading up to the financial crisis he did not prosecute any of the Wall Street bankers and traders and executives for what went wrong. And I've talked to plenty of whistleblowers, people who tried to alert their bosses about what was going wrong in the packaging up of mortgage-backed securities on Wall Street in the years leading up to the financial crisis, and their reward was to get fired. And instead of tracking down those people, I tracked down those people. I talked to those people. I've written about those people. Preet has subpoena power. He could have gotten those people in and and listened to them. And a lot of those uh, people did talk to U.S. attorneys uh, in various districts around the country, and they didn't do anything. You mentioned that Jesse Eisinger uh, has wrote a, has written a book about it, and it's called uh, Chicken Shit Club, which I which I love. And yeah. so my question, the last question on Preet is, do you think – I know you say you don't know, but do you think that that was a – Southern District of New York decision or a main DOJ? And I will just set the scene of I worked, as I've said often here, in the Bush administration. And actually my first day was the day that the Enron story broke. My first Oval Office meeting with George W. Bush was us briefing him on it and watching his reaction live. And I believe it was something of, you know, look, I don't know a lot about that stuff, but I can tell you one thing is that uh, in my view, uh, the captain should go down with the ship. He shouldn't be the first person off. And then you, I got to watch the implementation of that presidential yeah, view yeah. and say what you want about Bush and oil and gas, but Kenny Boy and Fastow and those people, they, were either, they either went down or they went to jail or they died right before they went to jail, but we prosecuted. But if that wasn't a Bush priority, I'm not sure that the Northern District of Texas or Southern District of Texas would have done that. I, I agree. I think – you know, I talked before about how much I admire Barack Obama, but I think this is one place where he really dropped the ball. And uh, I, I don't know whether he, he Eric Holder did it at the direction of Barack Obama, but there was this thing called the Holder Doctrine uh, that Jesse writes about and I've written about, uh, which uh, predated Eric Holder being the the attorney general. I think he was deputy attorney general or whatever when he penned that doctrine, which you know came out of the Arthur Anderson uh, prosecution uh, as a result of the advice that that accounting firm gave to Enron and Adelphia and all these firms and WorldCom and uh, Arthur Anderson was prosecuted. It went out of business and Eric Holder wrote this memo basically saying, you know, we have to be really careful when we prosecute corporations because they can go out of business and then uh, jobs are lost and lives can be affected and to which I say, okay – uh, but if you know it's a criminal enterprise or there's a lot of criminal behavior, then maybe that's the right thing. 
Absolutely. And to not prosecute that as a result and to let all this bad behavior go on, you know, because you're afraid that, you know, uh, a Goldman Sachs might go out of business if you actually uh, uncovered some of the things that were going on there, I think is ridiculous. And I don't mean, yeah. you don't mean Goldman Sachs necessarily in particular because I've written a book about Goldman too and, and we could talk about what they did right and what they did wrong in the crisis, but not to go after – uh, the people on Wall Street who were knowingly packaging up mortgages that should never have been issued in the first place into mortgage-backed securities and then selling them as investments all around the world is a huge prosecutorial failure. Uh, and then to turn around and let these people settle these cases with the Justice Department for billions of dollars, billions of their own shareholders' money, not I might theirs, add. Right. Not theirs. And then, like in the case of Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase settles for $13 billion, and then Jamie Dimon's reward is that he gets a, a, a salary increase from $13 million to $20 million or whatever it was in that particular year. Well, and the government gave him Washington Mutual and... And Barristers. Uh, well, I mean, we can debate whether, you know, he bought, the, whether he was given them or whatever. He certainly got an assist in buying them. But to, to, to settle with his, tax, with his shareholders' money... $13 billion, the clear wrongdoing, and then allow a, a, a document to be produced that whitewashes the whole thing, and then he gets rewarded with a huge increase in salary in five more years or 10 more years as CEO. I mean, what, that is not the same as justice. That is not the same as prosecuting. And when you have somebody like Preet Bharara and you have so much authority and so much power, you have subpoena power, you have the respect uh, of, of the people, and then you flub this one. That is inexcusable to me. And he should not be lionized. He should not have the number one podcast in New York State. He, he, you know, he should be you know, questioning his own judgment and the way he behaved, but he won't do that. On characters, the, the next character I want to talk about who you've written a lot about, who you and I both knew before the American people knew, Anthony Scaramucci. The Mooch. I just I want to talk about him just through the prism of everything that Trump touches, but also to explain some of his behavior a little bit in terms of a. I want you to define where he was on the Wall Street finance spectrum, and then a little bit about maybe why he went down the road that he did. But just talk about when you first met the Mooch, uh, Anthony Scaramucci, what you thought of him, and then the sort of development of the relationship and your writing about him. Well, I mean, I, I you know I first met Anthony. Uh, through his SALT conference, so, which is it was this hedge fund conference that he had in Las Vegas uh, each year, and he uh, he was like an impresario. I mean, I mean, uh, like the 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 music man. He ran a small hedge fund of funds, which you know, scheme of things on Wall Street is 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 uh, you know, it's not like being uh, uh, Ken Griffin or or Steve Schwartzman. I mean, you know, he he assembled a bunch of money and he chose other managers to run that money and he was very good at getting this money. Uh, you know, I don't know how well his uh, funds performed but, you know, he wasn't known really for that. He was known for this conference for being an impresario, for being very charming and personable and engaging and frankly, even though I didn't agree with his politics uh, he would always say things to me like we can disagree without being disagreeable which I find to be really lovely and what, uh, you know, America should all be about. And he would ha you know, attract incredibly intelligent and fun and interesting people to these conferences and then there'd be dinners where we'd all get together and, and, and you know, it'd be thrilling to be in a room with those people. And of course, I, I, I always, so I did that for four or five years and he paid me to do that and so I was glad to do it. It was a lot of fun and 
then I knew knew him uh, as somebody who wanted to get in, had always been interested in politics and wanted to get into politics. And so I just sort of followed him uh, in the 2016 cycle of how he was trying to go about that. And, uh, you know, f- first it was, uh, you know, the, the governor of Wisconsin and, and well, Scott Walker, that that went nowhere uh, quickly. And people would tell him, Anthony, you know, he probably doesn't have a chance. But, you know, and he was – no, no, I really like him. I really like him. And then he switched to, you know, uh, a Jeb Bush. Uh, and everybody thought that Jeb Bush with $100 million was a lock on this thing. And then, of course, after Super Tuesday, that was a disaster. And then he finally tells me, well, I got no place else to go but Trump. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to have to go with Trump because I want to be involved uh, in politics. And, you know, you know, t- to his credit, he – somehow was able to project this idea of taking Trump seriously, uh, both to Wall Street and in Washington and with Trump. You know, he was what on the uh, transition committee. Was he chairman of the transition committee? He was committee? like the spokesman, spokesman at least. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and then his saga of the way they treated him for the next, uh, uh, you know, what it was almost a year uh, where he had to sell his hedge fund of funds and he had an agreement with the Chinese company and then this was all used to badmouth him by uh, other people in the administration who didn't like how close he was to Trump and how his access that he had to Trump, all of which, you know, worked its way through to him becoming, you know, the communications uh, director for 10 days. And I thought, look, as I wrote a piece in the New York Times, this is not the Anthony Scaramucci I know. This is not the Mooch I know. Yes, I stand by that. It was not the mooch I know, you know, his sycophantic behavior, which I told him about and I called him on it and he he admits to. But, you know, in retrospect now, you know, that was like probably among the best 10 days of Trump's presidency. What do you think changed? You said that wasn't the Scaramucci you knew. And and he was once, you know, we can disagree and be agreeable about it. What do you think changed? Do you think it was getting into the political orbit generally or do you think it's Trump's orbit? Well, uh, I think probably being too close to to the to the flame and power becomes intoxicating and just the way he sort of con- conducted him. I mean, I liked the way he conducted himself that first press conference uh, on the podium. But he was saying how much he loved the president. I mean, he was really going overboard. I mean, it was you know, almost repulsive to have to listen to that because I know he didn't really think that. I mean, he he admired him. He admired him what he'd accomplished politically, but. You know, uh, he supported Scott Walker. Then he supported Jeb Bush. And now he's like going overboard on how much he loves Trump. And and I think he even talked about how, oh, my God, the guy can throw a football through a tire that's hanging. I mean, really, Anthony? I mean, so it it just got too overboard. So what's the – But I thought – but I think it's important to say this. I thought he brought a lot of energy to the job. I thought he, you know, completely – changed out the dynamic uh, with the previous uh, press secretary who uh, who was had an antagonistic relationship with the press. Anthony was going to be much more open, much more engaging. You know, people who had, had been blocked out previously uh, from asking questions at those uh, uh, press conferences or whatever they were, uh, uh, he went and t- talked to them immediately. He was much more open. Uh, much more dynamic, much more intelligence. He just had a – he has a better sense of people. He's he, – you know, he, he gets along with people much better. I thought he was a real asset and he recognized that and he, he promoted Sarah Sanders uh, and, you know, then he, you know, did that stupid thing with Ryan Lizza. And so there you go. So you said what changed is that he got too close to the power circle. He got too close to the inside. It, he got intoxicated and by it. That, that's just interesting to me as someone who is less familiar with Wall Street and has lived in Washington for the past eight years. What's the difference between the two? Because as an outsider of Wall Street, I would say that also has a 
a, a an inner circle of power that um, can corrupt or can change how you approach things or can you know mold you and how you yeah but it's like Maslow's needs hierarchy you okay know, what once you've you know you've got shelter once you've got food you know once you've got your family once you've got uh, you know some money in the bank you know once you have more money in the bank so so when you're on Wall Street you want to make you know most people want to make as much money as they can it's not it's not altruism it's not trying to help people it's you know I want to get security and safety for my family and once I've got that then I want to make more money because it's a way of keeping score and shows how rich and powerful I am but but always the elusive goal is you know getting to Washington because that once you've got the money and the power on Wall Street, I mean, it's like, you know, my book about Goldman is called Money and Power. Uh, you know, the Goldman way was once you've made it at Goldman as a partner and you've had your time, eight years, whatever it is, a partner at Goldman Sachs, they push you out the door to make A, to make room for more junior people, which I think is frankly brilliant uh, because that was one of the problems that I had working at Lazard where no partners would I ever want to leave. Uh, and then, you know, they say, you know, the the ultimate goal is – if if you can get to a high appointed office like Treasury Secretary Bob Rubin, Bob, Bob Rubin, <laughs> Paulson, Hank Paulson, uh, uh, Steve Friedman, uh, John Whitehead. I mean, why did Gary Cohn, who was pushed out of of Goldman Sachs because he made a power play that didn't work, uh, you know, why did he take up Trump's uh, call to be National Economic Advisor? Well, because he was, a, he was first of all he was a lifelong Democrat. I mean, it made no sense for him politically, but in the context of Goldman Sachs and to you know successfully leaving Goldman Sachs and being shown to be a you know successful Goldman Sachs partner and executive. Well, if you can be the National Economic Advisor, then you're in the same league as Bob Rubin and Steve Friedman. I also had another theory, Bill, because when I worked on the Senate Finance Committee in the early 90s, we passed a provision. If you went into government service and were forced to divest your holdings, you were able to, from the, of, the Office of Ethics, obtain something called a certificate of divestiture where you wouldn't have to pay capital gains and both – Until you, you could convert you convert your, your big winnings in Goldman Sachs stock into treasury securities and, and – Or Skybridge. Or, or other accepted uh, – and if you, until you sold that security, that holding, you didn't have to pay – Taxes on capital gains on, so you could defer capital gains forever, and you put it in your estate. I assume. I, I well, and you could. What they did was mostly they put it in things that are approved by the government, which are very uh, safe. conservative, safe things. And at some level, you never have to sell that and pay the capital gains because you always borrow against it. Well, exactly. And so it's a, it's a huge benefit. So I mean, Hank Paulson, uh, you know, had around seven hundred million dollars worth of Goldman stock when he went, uh, you know, in, in, to become Treasury Secretary. He was able to. I mean, at at the then peak of Goldman's stock, he was able to convert it into Treasury securities, and and, and I love Hank, but I mean, you know, that is a about two hundred million dollar windfall for yeah, Hank. I mean, right. Why does Wilbur Ross want to be Commerce Secretary? Because he can convert this agglomeration of uh, crap that he's developed over the years into into uh, you know tax deferred asset, and you know who wouldn't want to do that? So it's a huge uh, benefit uh, for people, and it makes sense. You know, it's there's logic to it. But it's also a huge benefit. But it's, but at Goldman, it's more than just that. And even at Lazard, I mean, you know, Felix Roden always wanted to be Treasury Secretary. He ended up getting – and then he wanted to be Fed Vice Chairman. And, and he, he was a thinker and a writer and a, and a Policy Institute guy. He was he was a banker. Yeah, but there's a he's myth talking. around Felix too. Right. So, I mean, I sure, wrote about the myth of Felix. But, I mean, he ended up being uh, ambassador to France. I mean, and, and – uh, you know, that was, you know, he wanted to be like, you know, uh, uh, like Bob Rubin or whatever. He wanted to be, 
Secretary of the Treasury. He probably couldn't believe that Bob Rubin was Treasury Secretary and not him. So in discussing uh, the next step for people who leave Wall Street successfully, they move to Washington, um, which is one reason why Wall Street matters, at least today. And I think that's a good transition to your book called Why Wall Street Matters. So why does Wall Street matter? Well, this came about, I mean, I was in the middle of writing my next book, which is going to come out in July, called Four Friends, about four friends of mine from high school and what happened to them in their lives. Uh, And I was in the middle of doing that. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren had just sort of gone off on uh, one of my friends who worked at Lazard, a guy named Antonio Weiss, who was head of investment banking at at Lazard and uh, who I had trained when I was at Lazard. He was a junior banker and he worked under, under me for a few years. Brilliant guy, very successful and decided he wanted to be, uh, I think, something like deputy treasury secretary in the Obama administration. Uh, and Obama had nominated him. That means, uh, as as you guys know, I mean, that's a full uh, nomination. That means he's been vetted. That means background checks. It's not just like floated out there to see if anybody bites or anything. It means he's been fully vetted. An FBI full field investigation. Whatever, whatever it is, uh, you know, a popular president, Democratic president had nominated this guy to be deputy treasury secretary. And Elizabeth Warren, who was probably then at the peak of her powers on the Senate Banking Committee, would not even meet with Antonio Weiss uh, because he worked on Wall Street. He was a Wall Street guy. That made him bad. That made him evil. That made him, you know, against the American people. You know, it's her whole shtick. And uh, I just couldn't believe that it had come to this, that, that Elizabeth Warren was in Obama's party. You know, Antonio was willing to give up his very lucrative job at Lazard to go work in the government because he believed it was the right thing to do. He had all sorts of skills that he was going to bring to the job. uh, And all he was asking for was a fair hearing. And she wouldn't even meet with him. And so he didn't get a fair hearing. He ended up having to withdraw his uh, name from nomination. Eventually, he was appointed a counselor to the Treasury Secretary, which didn't require Senate confirmation. So he got down there anyway and went anyway. uh, And he was able to do that for two years and accomplish a lot of things and gave up his post at Lazard, all these, you know, wonderful altruistic things that he was doing. And I just got so offended by the fact that just because you happened to work on Wall Street, that made you an evil person and that your your confirmation hearing could be blocked. You couldn't even have a, a meeting to see whether what kind of guy he was. I just was so offended by that and, and, and the way that Wall Street had just become post the financial crisis, post the Dodd-Frank law, post the Volcker rule had just become a convenient punching bag for politicians uh, looking to gain political points, uh, uh, you know, with their constituents. And there was just this huge disinformation about what Wall Street really does, what it's really all about, who really works there, what kind of people there. And I thought I should write this book so that people can really understand what's going on. And I, I walked through the history of Wall Street, how it came about, right. and, and I walked through what the kinds of things that Wall Street does that are so important that if we take so for granted that we, without it, we wouldn't be able to have any of the things that we take for granted in this country. Right. I think it's a great book. I think it's very informative. I listened to it on Audible. It was an easy listen. Uh, I found helpful the educational aspect of it. I definitely learned a lot listening to it. One of the points that you make toward the end of the book is that one of the key issues is that there are perverse incentives for the individuals on Wall Street because they take other people's money, make risky decisions with that, and they win either way. 
they don't get punished for that, um, either through the system or through the financing of it. That, that's why Preet Bharara is so important to the equation because he didn't police that behavior. Right. Those wrong incentives. So we talk about that and we talk about those perverse incentives that exist now. And you say, you know, one role of the Justice Department, as you just did, is, is to deal with that on the back end once those decisions have been made, once the fallout happens. What can we do? What can be done? How can the system change before we get to that point to reverse those perverse incentives or to change them? You know, that's like uh, uh, pitching a softball to me. I mean, because in the, in the book, uh, of course, I do talk about uh, some ideas about how to uh, change the incentives so people do the right thing and get rewarded to do the right thing as opposed to get rewarded to do the wrong thing so that we have to clean up the mess, which is inevitable. I mean, it's been, you know, now 11 years since the financial crisis. We're going to have another one, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out that the perverse incentives on Wall Street have once again, or, or in other places of finance, you know, where there are plenty of perverse incentives. I mean, and that's why I t- spend some time in the book talking about the, the, the evolution of Wall Street from a series of private partnerships where it was partners real money, real own capital in the firms to public companies where they were using other people's money uh, to pay bonuses. And the whole idea of a linkage between the capital that you have in the firm and, and your ownership of the firm and your responsibility for what the firm does on a day-to-day basis was completely lost. So More skin in the game. More skin in the game, and, and you know, and it wasn't such a far-fetched idea that I proposed to me because all these firms had been private partnerships where partners did have their own right. capital and and could lose their entire net worth along the way if something would happen. And by the way, that happened all the time. I, I start the Goldman book by saying Wall Street is a very dangerous place. Wall Street has always been a very dangerous place. We just forget that. We got a serious reminder in 2008, and we're going to get another reminder, you know, any day now. Uh, the problem is that you know, for all of Dodd Frank. For all of the vocal rule, I mean, I've said on and on and on many times. You could throw the Dodd Frank law away. You could throw the vocal rule away if you change the incentive systems on Wall Street and, and how people were held accountable for their behavior. You wouldn't need those laws because people would do the right thing because they would get rewarded to do the right thing or they would get fired for doing the wrong thing. And so, uh, but none of that changed for all that twenty two thousand pages of Dodd Frank law, which nobody has read and has been now being rolled back, uh, there's nothing in there that talks about changing the incentive system and the compensation system on Wall Street. I've had this debate with with, with Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman. I said, Lloyd, uh, I'll come down to Goldman. I'll be the CEO for six months. I'll have a term limit. I will implement this compensation system change, and I will leave. And I don't mean that that you'll be the one to clean up the mess, but I will be doing the thing that you don't want to do and that your board doesn't want to do and implement this change and make the American people better off. I've suggested What did he say? Did he say yes? He laughed. (laughs) He laughed. But at least he talked to me about it, unlike anybody else on Wall Street who wouldn't even pick up the phone to talk to me about it. And I think that's an important point of your book. And Bill, I've been trying to explain, and as you know, I've spent my career trying to operate in that nexus a little bit and explain Wall Street to Washington and Washington to Wall Street. And one of the things I thought was most important about your book was you trace those misaligned incentives, as you said, back to May of 1969 when DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette goes public, becomes the first one. I loved you talking about that. And people often talk about Wall Street being a casino culture. And you say this in the book, too, of about being the house wins. But has having worked there, what I observed was it was a casino culture, all right, but this is how I would lay it out. Somebody says, Bill, here's $10 million of somebody else's money. You get to go into a casino. If you win, you get a portion of that money. If you lose, 
maybe next year you'll be asked to leave the casino. That's the only downside. And if you're at a firm like a Goldman or the top tier firm, you can work your way down where you can spend your entire career not being all that successful at investing that, but still making huge bonuses because you made a few good up bets. And so how do we, to Katie's question and point, which is, is there a way to dial back that and again, you suggested this. Is it a percentage of skin in the game? I mean, if it's a private equity firm, do they have to have 40% of the money in any fund to their own money? Is it the same way with Wall Street banks? I mean, one of the things I loved when you did your critique of why re-implementing Glass-Steagall is foolish, and I was explaining this to my dad who knows a little bit about this and felt like I did, which is, well, we should go back to Glass-Steagall. And I said, well, wait a second. Bill very much describes this as in 1933 – separating commercial banking from investment banking was like separating the yolk from the egg white. Today, it would be like unscrambling the omelet. Right. And I like that. And you're right. And I, the Volcker rule, I like you, to You could separate uh, the white from the yolk pretty easily, <laughs> right. right? But now you'd have to unscramble the omelet because and, they're so integrated. And uh, and by the way, we wouldn't want that because – I mean this is why you know I get so frustrated with the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who of course benefited immensely. As I pointed out in Why Wall Street Matters, I think uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren got a $2 million advance or a million and a half dollar advance uh, from her book. Uh, she wouldn't have gotten that if there weren't like, this capitalist system that she derides on a regular basis. You know, the whole point here is that – uh, Wall Street does so many things that are good, that we need, that we take for granted. But, you know, uh, it is uh, clearly the dominant force in finance in the world. I mean, you may not like Wall Street, but it is uh, one of the things that America does best. I mean, it's sort of like our tech industry. Nobody's talking about, you know, we are more and more. I mean, some members of the uh, tech industry are, are coming in for a lot of criticism, but nobody, you know, that iPod, the iPad, I mean, whatever whatever it is, the iPhone, I mean, we, we love those things. We take them for granted. They are respected worldwide. Wall Street is respected worldwide. European banks, Asian banks, you know, all the innovation, all the creativity, all the trading, all, all the M&A advice, everything comes from, you know, within a mile radius of where we're sitting now. And so if you want to tear that apart and destroy that, you really have to wonder why you would do that. I mean, this is like, do you want to put Apple out of business? Because that's the same logic. And I think, you know, instead of deriding it and trying to tear it down, let's improve it. Let's change the incentives. Let's take the top thousand people at Goldman Sachs uh, and at, at these firms, the people who make the decisions about how to deploy capital, who gets rewarded, who pays the bonuses, who gets promoted and when, what business lines to be in, all of those things. Let's have those people once again have their full net worth on the line again, just like they used to when they were private partnerships, just like Mr. Sachs did and Mr. Goldman did. I mean, we're not that far removed from and even John Whitehead and John exactly. yep. and even even uh, you know Bob Rubin and and Steve Freeman and, and right. Paulson. I mean, Goldman only went, Goldman went public twenty years ago. It wasn't that so. Goldman's celebrating 150th anniversary this year. It went public twenty years ago. For the first 130 years of the 150 years, I don't know what that is. That's like something like 90 percent of its existence, 
was a private partnership where people who were the partners had liability, had a lot of their net worth and at times their full net worth on the line. We need to go back to that again because that will force the people who make these powerful decisions, these powerful people at these firms who are making important decisions to make the prudent decision, not the swinging for the fence with other people's money decision when they know there's no accountability because the corporate shell will cover the liabilities and it'll be the creditors and the shareholders who take it on the chin. I mean, there's no other business on the face of the earth where, you know, now it's less, but once upon a time, you know, 50 to 60 to 70 percent of all the revenues went out in the form of bonuses to the people who worked there. I mean, that's insane. Now it's 30 to 40 percent. Okay. But nevertheless, I mean, these are people who aren't taking any risk with their own money, and yet they're getting paid as if they're the owners. Right. Your next book, you mentioned it briefly. You're working on it. Just, you want to give us a little preview? I think oh, it's a, happy to. Yeah. Sure. I mean, what author doesn't want to talk about his, <laughs> his book? Uh, it's called Four Friends. It's about four friends of mine. I went to Andover. It's about four friends of mine from Andover, uh, what happened to them in their lives. We went there at a time uh, where you lost touch with people. If you know, you have to have their payphone number at their college dorm if you wanted to keep in touch and you know guys don't really write guys letters Uh, now it's very much easier (laughs) to keep in touch with people but each one of these four friends of mine unfortunately died young and tragically so as I saw this sort of pattern developing uh, including uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. who is a good friend of mine from Andover and who's uh, the 20th anniversary of his death is uh, coming up in July and I just you know how did these guys live their lives after Andover what did they do after Andover and what choices did they make that you know may or may not have led to what happened to their their ultimate fate which was dying young and tragically you know, after writing about Goldman, after writing about Lazard, after writing about Bear Stearns, after writing about the Duke lacrosse scandal, after writing about why Wall Street matters, I felt, you know, I'm, you know, not a young guy anymore. I felt I needed to sort of explore some of these existential issues about life and what we're doing here. And it was a great journalistic challenge because obviously these guys weren't here to talk to. So I had to talk to their families and their friends. And, you know, except for JFK Jr., there was no documentary evidence about these guys. So it was a real reporting challenge. It was also somewhat sentimental and melancholy, but also uh, it, it was a real uh, it allowed me to write an, an homage of sorts. Not that I shied away from the the brutal facts of their lives, which are in some cases you know unpleasant. John F. Kennedy Jr. made a lot of mistakes in his life, especially that fateful day, you know, in July of 1999. And you know what had led him to that point? What had led some of my other friends to the point that they ultimately lost their lives in a tragic way. Mm, That sounds like it'll be a good book. It's not about Trump. I don't mention Trump once, so that means it may not make it, you know, to to the bestseller list. But I think it's something we can all relate to. And I think that we all know people who died young and tragically. And that's just something we all can relate to. And going to a place like Andover, which sort of indoctrinates you in how wonderful your life can be and how how much you can succeed because you've gotten every advantage in the world and you're like a Delta Force team out there in the world to have, you know, the reality kick in that, you know, things don't always work out like you hope is pretty interesting. Well, we look forward to that. Bill Cohen, you can read him in Vanity Fair. You can listen to him on Audible. You can read him in all of the other publications that we have, uh, that we listed at the top. Thank you so much for being our Thank guest. Thank you. It's great. I really appreciate Enjoyed it. it. Thanks. Thank you. And now for a final word, the host of Words Matter, Katie Barlow. Thank you, Adam. I'm grateful to be here and to be able to contribute to Words Matter. 
I grew up in Georgia, the daughter of an English teacher. So I knew from a young age that words have power and consequences and that language is important. And so I knew since I was young that I wanted to be a legal journalist and participate in a world where words had import and were given their weight each and every day. And so I went to law school. I went to law school to learn how to speak the language of law, which is inaccessible to many and overly complicated, unnecessarily so. I joined the practice of law to learn to speak those words and that language fluently. And as a journalist, I want to help translate that language and those words for those who do not speak it. And that's why I'm here. I won't be offering opinions in the way that you have traditionally heard them, perhaps, but I do hope to participate through questions and analysis of the words and language we tackle each week here. Words Matter will be back next week, and we hope you will be too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.